question on consciousness from Nandita S. and Prasanth B. I saw your videos regarding Advaita Vedanta, but I have one doubt. If the consciousness Turiya is the only reality, is this consciousness present in non-living things like chairs, tables, etc.? If bliss is Brahman, then what about non-living matter? Are they not Brahman? All right. Look at the language. If consciousness is the only reality, Turiya is the only reality, is it present in non-living things, non-living matter? Now, if non-living matter is real, then consciousness is the only reality. So consciousness should be present in non-living matter. And yet, we find a kind of dissonance in this thinking because we feel that we are conscious and the chair and the table are not conscious. Let's go a little deeper into this. Vedanta has a very precise way of considering these things. What is a living being in, in uh, the Vedantic sense? A living being in Vedantic sense is a body like this with prana. The very word living being, living, being is anything that exists. But living being, the word living is, in, in, if you translate it into Vedantic terms, it means prana, life forces, vitality. So, when you consider yourself, when you consider a living being, what you see is first a body, and then when you look inside yourself, you have a first-person experience inside of thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas. That's what's called a subtle body. And there's something called a causal body, we will not go into that. And beyond that is what the Atman calls, uh, what, what Vedanta calls the Atman, or pure consciousness, the real self. So, to put it very simply, a tripartite idea of the human personality. Physical body, sthula sharira. Subtle body, sukshma sharira. And the real you, the Atman. This is a simplified version. A more, let us say, if you have what is called a cutout diagram, you know, if you go zoom in a little more, what you will see is the five koshas, the five layers of the human personality. So first you have a physical body. This is called Annamaya Kosha, the body which you experience. By the way, whatever I'm saying here, the Vedantic paradigm, it's not really speculation. It's actually a pretty good way of understanding our experience right now. You can immediately apply it to your experience. So first we see a physical body, the Annamaya Kosha, literally food sheath, because it's a transformation of the food and drink that we take in. And then to it, in, in, in it, pervading it, is the subtle body. The subtle body is composed of three sheaths. Kosha means sheath. Sheath is something which covers. Why is it called a sheath? Because it covers the real you, as it were. So three sheaths, what are they? The pranamaya kosha, the vital sheath, which is responsible for all the functions of a living body. You know, the vital functions, digestion, blood circulation, breathing, all of that is because of this life forces, prana. Then, subtler than that is what is called the manomaya kosha, the mind, thoughts, feelings, uh, memories. If you just look inside, you will experience it. All the time we are experiencing it. The person, we call out the person, that is, that is the manomaya kosha. And another allied function is, is the vijnanamaya kosha, the, the sheath of intellect. 
that which gives understanding, the determinative faculty, intellect, intelligence. So Vedanta, on purpose, distinguishes between mind and intelligence. It, although they are basically the same thing, one is a higher function, one is a lower function of the same thing. Included within these three, the pranamaya, manomaya and vijnanamaya, are the sensory system. Uh, the ability to see and hear and smell and taste and touch. The motor organs, walking and talking and grasping. So all the, the motors, motor organs and the sense organs, they're all the powers up behind them. The physical aspect of it is in the food sheet. So the powers, the activities are included in, the, uh, in these three sheets. And these three sheets together are called the subtle body. Beyond that is something called the causal body, Anandamaya Kosha. Let's not bother about it now. And beyond that is the real, real us, the Atman, which is, which is pure consciousness. So this is the model of, um, of a living being. The moment the subtle body leaves the physical body, subtle body along with prana, pranamaya kosha is part of the subtle body, when it leaves the physical body, we say that the body is dead. Then there is no difference between the dead body, which was once a living body, and other non-living matter. So I'm coming back, circling back to the question. Uh, what is the difference between non-living matter and living matter, as far as consciousness is concerned? Now, when the subtle body goes away, we call that the, the physical body left behind, we call it a dead body. In simple language, in every Indian language we say, the prana has gone. In Hindi, pran nikal gaye, pran we say. So the, it means the subtle body has gone. No longer a living body. But the subtle body does something else also. And this is important. What the subtle body does is, the consciousness, the Atman, is, so to say, within quotes, reflected in the subtle body. In the Manomaya Kosha, in the Vijnanamaya Kosha, it's reflected there, it shines there, and it, you feel aware. This reflection of the Atman in the subtle body is the awareness which we feel right now. Right now, when you look, you see a physical body here. And then breathing in and out, that is the pranic, uh, the, the pranamaya kosha. When you think, I'm going to lift my hand, that thought, manomaya kosha. Actually, when you lift the hand, that the energy you're using, pranamaya kosha. The decision you take to lift the hand, vijnanamaya kosha. And if any kind of happiness you derive from it, it's called the Anandamaya Kosha, but that's something else. But apart from these five sheets, we also feel awareness. I am aware. I am aware. I am conscious. We all say that. I am conscious. I am aware. Though a long Vedanta talk takes its toll on your consciousness. <laughs> You're less and less conscious as the talk. <laughs> no. So we feel that we are, I am aware. I am conscious. This awareness or consciousness is not the Atman as such. It is a reflection of the Atman in the mind. That's what we feel as consciousness. Now, you can tell me. If something does not have the subtle body, you have the subtle body and I have the subtle body and we feel the reflection of the consciousness in the subtle body. But if something does not have the subtle body, will it have the reflection of consciousness? No. Though consciousness is present right there, it will not have the reflection of consciousness. It's like a pot with water and the pot next to it without water. Now the pot with water 
will reflect the sun. You will find a little sun, a little image of the sun shining in that water. But the pot without water, although the sunlight is falling equally on that pot, but you will not find a little image of the sun shining there. Because the water is not there. The water has a peculiar capacity of reflecting sunlight and also forming an image. Yeah. The subtle body is like that water. A living body is like that pot with water. A dead body is like the pot without water. Non-living matter is like the pot without the water. Now we can answer that question. Do, if, if consciousness is the only reality, is it present in uh, non-living matter? So non-living matter is like the pot without the water. Will the reflection, the little shining um, sun in that water, will it be present if there is no water? No. But is the actual sun, the sunlight, is it present or not? Yes. So the answer is, pure consciousness, Atman, Brahman, is the only reality and is present everywhere. Only thing is, you cannot appreciate it, you cannot feel it, you cannot experience it. Unless there is a subtle body. That's why living bodies seem to be conscious and non-living bodies do not seem to be conscious. And if you say consciousness pervades everything, then you will get a question like this. If consciousness pervades everything, I get it. I am conscious. And these people seem to be conscious. And, <laughs> but the chairs we are sitting on, the carpet we have put our foot on, the, the building we are sitting in, doesn't seem to be conscious. Why not? We have subtle body. They have subtle bodies. And these things do not have the subtle body. In practice. I remember I was sitting once in my little hut in the, in the mountains. And this young monk used to come to speak with me. He used to live in a cave. And we would come and chat. So he, he asked something like this about the all-pervasiveness of consciousness. And I said... When a person dies in a dead body, is the Atman? Atman is there everywhere. Brahman is everywhere. Atman is everywhere, right? He said, yes. We were talking in Hindi. When a dead body, is the Atman still there? He looked confused. It's, uh, if it's everywhere, it should be there in a dead body. But then how is a body dead then if, if the Atman is there? You see, if you understand the Vedantic understanding of um, living being and non-living being, it's very clear. It's nothing to do with Brahman or Atman. It's to do with the presence or absence of the subtle body. One more thing, especially Indians, we will say that, why then do we say that the Atman has gone when the body dies? We say, that's what's called the Jeevatman. The Jeevatman is the actual Atman limited by the subtle body. What goes away? Remember, if you take the pot with water, with a little sun shining there, and pour the water into another pot, empty pot, what will happen to the little sun shining there? It will travel with that water. And you get, this is, that is what, what is called transmigration. You feel, uh, this body is dead, and I'm going on to other lives, other places, other bodies, I'm reborn again. Huh? The little sun will feel, I'm reborn again in this new pot, shiny new <laughs> pot, the old pot is broken. But the real sun is your real nature, not that little moving uh, image of the sun. So I hope in all these examples and all, it, it's, uh, I hope the answer is found there. Yes. One more? Yes, one more. Um, this one is from Mukand N. on the nature of bliss. We always say Brahman is infinite existence, consciousness, and bliss. 
We know the existence aspect, and it is clearly not a function of a state of mind. As jiva, we know we exist similarly. Awareness or consciousness is also not a function of the state of mind. But when it comes to the nature of bliss, I think it is a function of a state of mind, because we experience the bliss only when the mind is calm. So bliss is not infinite because it is dependent on a calm mind. I am predicting your answer as follows. <laughs> Good, I like that. Your mind's calmness is dependent on external conditions. This calmness, called as happiness, comes and goes. But you, pure being, as experiencer of this happiness, is Brahman. Not being dependent on anything, Brahman's bliss is bliss itself. Here is my counter question to your answer. Okay. Then what is the use of such infinite bliss, which doesn't even light up the mind and keep it forever in bliss? Does a pure being experience this bliss all the time? It's a good question. These questions are good, the questions which help us to understand Vedanta more deeply. The old scholars had a term for this kind of question. They used to call it Stuna Nikandana Nyaya. That means a pillar. You're going to drive a pillar into the, into the ground. Now when you drive a pillar into the ground to make it, to set it more firmly, what do you do? You shake it, bring it out and drive it down again further. So apparently you're doing something wrong. You're bringing it out. But the next time you drive it down, it'll, be, it'll go in deeper. So similarly, when you ask these questions, probing questions and counter questions and possible answers, you are as if shaking the foundation of uh, Advaita, but when you understand it the next time, it will be a deeper understanding. All right, let's consider the question. The ultimate reality, our nature is supposed to be Sat, Chit, Ananda, existence, consciousness, bliss. Pure being, pure awareness, and pure bliss. And the question is, I can sort of understand that existence is not a function of the mind. Things can exist without the mind. Even pure consciousness is not a function of the mind. Pure consciousness is the witness of the mind. But bliss seems to be a function of the mind. Without the mind, how can you have bliss? And if the mind is not there, will this Satchidananda, will it still be there? Will there be bliss? And if that bliss is not experienced, then what is the use of such a bliss? So the mind becomes essential. Mm. All right. This is a good time to clarify. This kind of question is a good, good opportunity to clarify what is meant by Sat Chit Ananda. If you understand what is meant by existence, pure existence. If you understand what is meant by pure consciousness, you will also understand what is meant by pure bliss. What is meant by pure existence? It, things exist. Look at our own experience. Things exist. Is this what is meant by pure existence? No. Existence itself apart from the things which exist. That is Sat, pure being. And notice something. You can only experience things which exist. You cannot experience pure being in itself. Are you with me? Yes. You can look around yourself. Look around yourself. 
Is there existence? Say, yeah. Where? In things which exist. Can you point out pure existence somewhere? Existence without a thing. You can say chair exists, otherwise we'd be pretty much sitting on the floor. We can say my body exists. We can say even space exists. We can say time exists, light exists. We can even say our thoughts exist. We can even say a fictional character like Harry Potter in some sense in the fictional world exists. We can say things like numbers exist. But existence itself, you can never, never, never experience it separately from the things which exist. Similarly, similarly, consciousness itself. Where is consciousness experienced? Where do you experience consciousness, awareness? Only inside yourself. In thoughts. Thoughts, feelings, emotions, memories, desires, understanding. All the activities of the inner instrument, antakkarana, the mind and intellect. Isn't that where you experience consciousness? Tell me where else do you experience consciousness? Nowhere else. And only in your mind. You don't experience consciousness in anybody else. No? There should be somebody who will protest. So are you saying, Swami, my neighbor is not conscious? <laughs> they are conscious. We are all conscious. But you do not experience their consciousness. What do you experience? The body. The behavior. The language. And you infer. Just like I am feeling aware inside, that guy must be also feeling aware inside. But that awareness which you feel inside, you do not feel it directly in them. So, if you became a telepath, you would experience their thoughts. But you would not experience their awareness. So the awareness is only direct, directly felt in our own thoughts, emotions, ideas. But without the thoughts, emotions, ideas, can you experience awareness? No. Similarly, just as Existence is experienced in existing things. Consciousness is experienced in conscious thoughts, feelings, emotions. Bliss is also experienced in blissful states of the mind. Bliss itself is not experienceable. Bliss itself is not experienceable. What, so what good is that? It's like saying, ornaments can be experienced. Necklace. Uh, a bracelet, um, all these, a ring can be experienced. You can experience um, ornaments. Gold seems to be a theoretical thing. thing. What's the use of gold? Ornaments are the real thing. No, they are, gold itself is the real thing. And it's gold alone you are experiencing in different forms called necklaces, rings and bracelets. Similarly, Vedanta says that existence or Sat alone is the reality which you experience as existing things. Consciousness alone is the reality which you experience as conscious thoughts, feelings, emotions. And that thing itself is bliss, which you experience as blissful experiences, pleasurable experiences, happy experiences. So if you ask the question, what good is bliss if you cannot experience it? It's like asking, what good is gold? I'm interested in the ornaments. Well, the ornaments are gold. Without the gold, no ornaments are possible. What good is pure existence? I'm, ex I'm interested in a table which exists, a chair which exists, my food which exists. That's what I'm interested in. But without pure existence, these things wouldn't exist. Hmm. 
So if you reduce it to a theoretical form, pure being and name and form. Brahman and name and form. Maya is name and form and Brahman is Sat Chit Ananda. Then what happens? What does Brahman do for Maya? And what does Maya do for Brahman? Then the answer to the question will be clear. What does Brahman do for this world? And what does this world do for Brahman? What does Brahman, what does gold do for the ornament? It's the basis of that. It gives, gives, what does gold give to the ornament? Existence, yes. Everything to the ornament. So Brahman gives existence to this world. It lends awareness, it lights up this world. Not only exists, it's not a dark existence. You are aware. You are aware of yourself, you are aware of, aware of the world, so it lights it up. And it gives bliss, it gives happiness, pleasure, meaning, value to this world. So, existence, awareness, and all meaning and value and purpose, everything comes from Satchidananda. But the varieties of it, that existence, Will it be a chair or a table or a car or a park or sky or earth, quarks or quasars? That is Maya. Remember all of this from the quark to the quasar, minus existence, what will happen? Nothing. Your life, whether you believe in Vedanta or not, whether you're theist or atheist, whether you are uh, happy, unhappy, whether you're very intelligent and, and, a, and a PhD or just ordinary, whatever it is, all the experiences, scientific, aesthetic, spiritual, every experience you have, there's one thing common to all of that, one thing which makes all of that possible, consciousness. If you're not conscious, nothing. So Brahman makes all experience possible. Brahman makes all existence possible, all experience possible. And all of this becomes valuable and nice and interesting and worthwhile because of the Ananda aspect of Brahman. And yet, in its own nature, as Sat, Chit, Ananda, it is not an experienced object. So what does Brahman do for Maya or for the world? It gives existence. It gives light, awareness, it gives value, meaning, uh, purpose, pleasure, uh, all that makes it worthwhile. Everything comes from Brahman. But what does the world do for Brahman? What does Maya do for Brahman? She said it's a tool to recognize it. You're close. In fact, in a general sense, Maya manifests Brahman. Maya manifests Brahman. What does that mean? Without Maya, Brahman would not be experienceable. You are actually experiencing Brahman right now. Do not recognize it. Do not know it. Samsara. If you know it, recognize it in this very experience. Jivan Mukti. Enlightened while living. Yes. You cannot. So, so you can recognize it only with, with the help of Maya. Maya deludes you into forgetting Brahman and creates samsara for us. Maya also helps you to recognize Brahman and in this appearance, world of appearance, sets you free. And then everything becomes existence, consciousness, bliss. You recognize it in so many forms. That is the freedom while living. Right? So this is the answer. Um, if you ask 
Yeah, the two persons, I'll call on you. If you ask further, the question was, what is the use of that bliss if you cannot experience it? It's like saying, what is the use of the gold if it's not made into an ornament? Gold is the reality. It's further like saying, I have a face, I can reflect it in the mirror. What does my face, uh, what does the mirror do for my face? It manifests it. But suppose you say, there's no, if there's no mirror, the reflection is not there. What's the use of having a face if uh, I cannot reflect it in a mirror? Will you say that? That's how, how silly is that? If you have a face, you can reflect it in a mirror if you so like. If you do not like, you need not reflect it in a mirror. You're perfectly alright. By reflecting it in the mirror, did you add anything to the face? Nothing. As long as you want, go on reflecting your ananda in the mind and enjoy. When you don't want, don't reflect ananda in the, in the mind. Be as you are, as infinite existence, consciousness, place. And remember, in our day-to-day -day lives, not knowing Brahman, we keep doing the same thing. When we reflect ourselves in the world, we say waking state, dream state. When we do not reflect ourselves in the world, we say deep sleep state. But because we do not know what we are, this waking, dreaming and deep sleep is samsara for us. The moment we realize what we are, in waking, dreaming and deep sleep, we will recognize only the Turiya, the one underlying awareness. Alright. And stop there. I'll come to you. There were two hands up. The lady, yes, please come here. Yeah, you can ask a question. Tell us your name and ask the question. Thank you, Swami. My name is Malini. And on the subject of Brahman reflecting on Maya and vice versa, um, I would like to know the influence of karma because we can see clearly from what you said. Obviously, the choice for bondage or liberation is something that you work towards or is within you. So, good, good, bad, bad. Does karma play a part so that when you are in the world of maya, your liberation really depends on the way you influence your world or not? Thank you. All right. The role of karma. Karma is causality. The causes we sent, set into motion will have consequences. And the consequences are our life. In, in a very philosophical, advaitic sense, the kind of reflections you have, the kind of names and forms you're confronted with, the persons you live with, the body and the health that you have, the success and failure in our day-to-day -day life, all of that is a product of karma. Remember, from, the Brahman's, from Brahman's perspective, it's the same. From a gold perspective, it's the same. But the kind of ornament that you manufacture, that's your, that's your karma, right? Now, a lot of bad karma traps you in samsara. A lot of good karma sets the stage for freeing you from samsara. And this trapping in samsara and freeing from samsara from an Advaitic perspective is just this. Recognizing that it is all Brahman, freedom. Not recognizing it as Brahman. I am Brahman and this is Brahman. Not recognizing that, samsara. Now the ability to recognize that, the opportunity to recognize that, that comes in spiritual life, in Vedanta. And we say in Vedanta it requires a lot of good karma. A lot of good karma. Avadhuta Gita says, Ishwar Anugraha Deva Pumsam Advaita Vasana. By the special grace of God, one gets an, gets an interest in Vedanta. 
You need not say Vedanta. You might, you might just say spiritual life. An interest in spiritual life, that shows good karma. But there's a downside to it. It means you're spending your good karma very fast. <laughs> you're using up a lot of your good karma. So yes, do a lot of good karma. The fact that you are interested in spiritual life, it itself shows you are what is we call punyatma. A lot of punya is there, a lot of good karma is there. Take this opportunity. You're paying heavily for it. Your karma, karma balance is getting depleted heavily. There's a saying among the monks in the Himalayas, if you have a lot of good karma, then you have a pleasant life. Things go your way, you're healthy, you're surrounded by good people, you're successful in life, whatever you do. And if you have a lot more good karma, tremendous amount of good karma, you come to spirituality. They actually say that you come to Vedanta. <laughs> so, good karma, happy life. Very good karma, spiritual life. Thank you. Thank you. I'll take one more question, the, the young man there. Yes, please come. Tell us your name and ask the question, and then we'll go back to them. Pranam Swamiji. Uh, my name is Darshan. Uh, Darshan means? Darshan means? To see. Seeing. Darshan means seeing. And in India, Darshan, the word Darshan means philosophy. Darshan also means in its highest sense, realization, seeing the ultimate truth. And don't forget the question. Uh, I'm, I just, <laughs> I, and why I intervened was, it's only recently that I, I learned something very interesting. Um, in a book on, on Western thought, the history of thought, by Luc Ferry, who is a French philosopher. You know, when we studied Western philosophy, we were always told, Indian philosophy is darshan, seeing the truth. But Western philosophy, I still remember, we, our teacher in Western philosophy was this very short, tough, old, uh, retired professor. He was a disciple of Swami Abhedananda. Nirodbaran uh, Chakravarti. I still remember, he had a booming voice. He would say, uh, we were all young novices. He would say, philosophy in Western sense is not seeing the truth. It is... Philosophia, the love of wisdom, basically it consists in thinking about philosophical issues. So don't confuse darshan and philosophy. Now, that's what I always thought. But it never satisfied me. Until I read this book by the French author recently, and the author says, the French author, Luc Ferry, he says, the original word is theory. Theorao. Seeing of ultimate truths. That's the meaning of the word theory. Literally, darshan and theory are the same thing. Theos are ultimate truths. Orao is to see. To see ultimate truths and darshan is to see ultimate truths. Literally the same thing. Okay, I almost forgot my question. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so from the experience point of view, when, when we say when we are in Maya, there is this experience that we have in Maya and there is a Brahman experience. So that, that way there is a duality, right? I mean, if it is all non-dual, when this single experience that, that only persists, why would it take in the form of duality, like a Maya and then your Brahman? All right, let me uh, pursue this. Non-duality is the reality but it appears as duality. 
Now, experience, when you say experience in Sanskrit, anubhava or experience, experience always has this structure, subject and object. Automatically, duality comes there. Hmm. So, duality, and if you look at our life, it is uh, clearly duality is there. Duality means separation, bheda, separation. Hmm. I am different from you. This, this is duality. I end here at the tip of my finger, and after this, you begin. All other things hmm. begin. So this is duality. When I feel I am this and you are, that is different. This and I am that. Um, what Advaita wants to say, this, I cannot emphasize this enough. What Advaita wants to say is, non-duality is the reality of which duality is the appearance. It does not deny that you experience a duality. It only questions the reality of that experience, the reality of the duality. It says the non-dual non reality alone appears as the duality experience. Without duality, you cannot have experience. Mm -hmm. Right? So, but isn't that then there's still a distinction? No. This lectern is made of wood. So wood is the reality and lectern is the appearance thereof. Are there two things? Though we are using two words, wood, lectern, a podium. We are using two words, but are there two things? Can you count two things? If you can count two things, you have to show me separately. Can you show them separately? No. You cannot. But unless the wood is made into the podium, you cannot experience it. I mean, you can experience it as a log of wood, but it needs some form to experience. Mm -hmm. You cannot use it, and you cannot give it the name podium. So what we call Nama, Rupa, Vyavahara, name, form and use, transactional use, all of that is Maya, but underlying it is one non-dual reality. Name, form and use require duality. What Advaita says, that duality is an appearance, it's not the ultimate reality. Mm -hmm. Samsara, then what is Samsara and what is enlightenment from that perspective? We are, we are in very rarefied philosophy here, it's stratospheric. Samsara is when you recognize the duality, this one, and that's it, nothing more. Then you are trapped here. You're continuously struggling with this duality to make it a better duality. And it always keeps changing. Continuous changes there. Even if you make it a better duality, you're richer, healthier, more knowledgeable. What will happen next? Change. Very rich. Change, less rich. Very healthy, change, less healthy. Alive, change, dead. <laughs> there is no stability in duality. It's continuous change. Uh, the Buddha, anityam, anityam, sarva, anityam. But in non-duality, change is not possible. What will change into what? The moment something changes, something duality is there. So non-dual reality, if you recognize it in the midst of duality, that is enlightenment. Because you are that non-dual reality. That non-dual reality is, is free of samsara. When you realize, aham brahmasmi, free of samsara. But if you say, aham manoasmi, I am the mind, in samsara. I am, aham dehoasmi, I am the body, in samsara. Very good. I'll, I'll call on you. Another question from the internet audience. Yes. We're getting very rarefied questions, difficult ones. You have something easier for me? No? 
It's a question on suffering. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> on suffering, all right. Is it, is it fair to infer that suffering brings us close? Who asked the question? Oh, I beg your pardon, it's Tulasi. Tulasi. Yeah. Not our Tulasi, no. No. No, okay. Is it fair to infer that suffering brings us closer to spirituality, taking examples of Buddha and a few others? In the modern world, can this be interpreted differently, that people who are emotionally and mentally weak resort to spirituality as an escape route? Please explain. I'll divide the question into two parts. One is a broad question of the utility of suffering as far as spirituality is concerned. Yes. It has been always connected with spirituality. See, ultimately, one realizes that the deep existential level of suffering built into our lives. Gita says birth is suffering, um, uh, uh, disease is suffering, old age is suffering, death is suffering. Janma mrityu jara vyadhi dukkha doshanudarshanam. When you see the suffering inherent in all of this, this is called etad gyanamiti proktam. In the Gita it says, this is wisdom. Because why is this wisdom? Because this leads to enlightenment. The fundamental nature of suffering, that it is all pervasive. Buddhism begins with that. The first noble truth of the Buddha, four noble truths, there is suffering, dukkha. Dukkham, dukkham, sarvam, dukkham. Dukkham, dukkham, sarvam, dukkham. Then, second, no, no. It is Dukkham, Dukkham, Sarvam, Dukkham. Second is there is a cause of Dukkha. Suffering is the problem. Is there a cause? Yes. The cause of suffering is desire, Trishna. Is it a curable disease or incurable? There is a cure. There is a possibility of going beyond suffering. That is called Nirvana. And is there a method, a treatment? Yes. Buddha said, Eightfold Path. Buddhism, Sankhya, the Sankhya philosophy starts with this question of suffering. Afflicted by the threefold suffering, there is an inquiry into a spiritual means of overcoming suffering. If you ask, won't the worldly means of overcoming suffering do? No, we say no because of two reasons. One is they are not guaranteed to remove suffering and none of them are permanent solutions to suffering. What a profound statement. That's the first verse, the opening verse of the most ancient textbook on Sankhya philosophy. The Sankhya Karika of Ishwar Krishna. It's very old. And it was popular at one time because um, they found a Chinese translation of the Sankhya Karika made by a Brahmin from Ujjain called Paramartha dating back to 1500 years. So what a wonderful world they had at that time. We have no idea really. I found it in my Indian philosophy, a yeah, darshan textbook. <laughs> a Chinese, a, a, a Brahmin from Ujjain in India, whose name is Paramartha, translates the Sankhya Karika into Chinese, 1500 years ago. And the book itself is old, much older than that. That's the opening verse. See the centrality of suffering they put. The suffering is the source for inquiry into spirituality. Dukkhatraya bhigatat. Afflicted by the threefold suffering, 
an inquiry arises into the means of overcoming, spiritual means of overcoming suffering. Why spiritual means? They are useless because much easier worldly means of overcoming suffering are there. We say no. All the worldly means of overcoming suffering, whatever you have, none of them are guaranteed to solve your problem. And even if they do solve your problem, it's not a permanent solution to your problem. It will come up in some other way. But the spiritual solution is guaranteed and a permanent solution. You say, says who? Says all the religious traditions of all, the whole world. That is the meaning of the term you come across. Whether it is the Christian salvation or the Islamic heaven or the Hindu moksha or the Buddhist nirvana. It means that there is a guaranteed solution to the problems of life and a permanent solution to it. A complete solution to it. So yes, suffering is connected with that, uh, with an inquiry into, into <coughs> there is a saying however, suffering of what sort? Tremendous unrelenting suffering which gives you no respite at all, you, there won't be any spirituality. Because just suffering is there, life is full of suffering, it, no, no chance of dealing with it. So they say there are hells, terrible places where people just suffer and suffer and suffer and uh, until the bad karma is exhausted, do they become very spiritual in hell? No. Because too much suffering. And there are heavens where they are, life is one long party. So do they become very spiritual in the heavens? No. Too much pleasure, no chance of uh, spirituality. Too much suffering, no chance of spirituality. It's usually in this middle realms, like this earth, where it's a mixture of both. So this is the ancient mythology in, in India. So that, that's why human life is valued. Because it's the best form of life? Not at all. Don't kid yourself. There are much better forms of life as far as pleasant life is concerned. There are multiple heavens. And there are much worse kinds of life. The multiple hells in the mythology or, or the, the, way, the cosmology of ancient um, um, Hinduism. Even Buddhism and Jainism. Multiple. There are many, many worlds. But this world is good because it's a nice balance which forces you towards the ultimate purpose of all of this, which is enlightenment. The second question was, yes, one can use spirituality as an excuse. Because remember, ultimately, spirituality is supposed to take you beyond suffering. But if spirituality is used as an excuse, there's a term for that. Psychologists have invented a term recently. It's called spiritual bypassing. <laughs> spiritual bypass. I have many problems in my life. I refuse to deal with it. Why? Because I'm Brahman. <laughs> I won't pay my bills, I, I won't turn up for work on time, uh, I don't, uh, um, my uh, email backlog is all clogged up, I don't do any of it, uh, why? I'm Brahman, I don't need to. That's bypassing. No, no Upanishad talks about this extraordinarily lazy Brahman. <laughs> That's spiritual bypassing. Now what will happen? So it's, isn't it bad? What will happen is, Suffering will increase. Suffering will not go away. A psychologist was talking about the problem of procrastination. Where you put up things. Gita, in fact, deals with it. Gita says, Dirga Sutri. Procrastination is a sign of tamas in the mind. Now look at the paradox of procrastination. I'm just giving an example. 
by bypassing how spirituality uh, will not help you to remove suffering. Procrastination is a classic example of bypassing. Because you put it off. Put off things which have to be done. What will happen? The paradox is this. Why do we put it off? We put it off because doing it is troublesome. Doing it leads to suffering. So I want a relaxed, nice couch potato life, so I don't want to get up and be up and doing. But when I put it off, it keeps mounting. The problem keeps increasing. And the total amount of suffering over a period of time, when you finally have to deal with it, either you have to do it, which is troublesome, or you don't do it, the consequences will break upon you one day. Then the suffering is much more than what it would have been if you had done it at that time. So the paradox of procrastination is we do it to avoid suffering and we end up by getting more suffering. Like that, if one uses spirituality to bypass uh, facing the challenges of life, one will end up getting more suffering. Though spirituality itself is supposed to remove suffering. That means it was not true spirituality. It was an excuse. Yeah. Spirituality always... Any true spirituality encourages you to be up and doing. Swami Vivekananda said, there are tests of truth. Does it make you stronger? Then take it as the truth. Are you becoming weaker? Reject it as poison. One friend, a, a, a young student in India told me, I have a friend who goes to this particular guru and he is full of stories about this guru, how wonderful the guru is. I said, is your friend becoming more independent or more dependent on the Guru? He said, no, that's true, he's becoming more dependent. Not good. It will lead to unhappiness. It will lead to unhappiness. Test of truth is unselfishness. Vivekananda, this is a simple test of truth. Unselfishness is spirituality. Selfishness is worldliness. Applied to our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our points of view on life. We'll see whether it is true or false. Oneness, unity, lead, uh, he says, is, is a test of truth, and that which divides is, is a test of, uh, is, shows falsity. Apply it to our life. So these are nice tests to apply. Good. Have another question? One more? Uh, yes, a couple of questions on non dualism and the Ramakrishna tradition. Yes. Uh, from Sujoy R. and Chris B. In a lot of branches of the Ramakrishna mission, it has been observed that they worship different gods or idols, chanting and praying for small gods or local gods. But the basic teaching of Sri Ramakrishna is non-dualism. My question is, is it difficult to stay in, non, in the non-dual concept? And in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, there are so many times when Thakur says Yana is extremely difficult. It is not the path of the Kali Yuga, and Bhakti is the way. Why then do we study Yana in the Ramakrishna tradition? Why do we study Jnana or this path of non-dualism? So it's a good question. Some people have the question. Let me give you the direct answer first, and then I'll explain. The straight answer is what we teach in the, in the, the Ramakrishna order is the foundation is of non-dualism and the various expressions can be of many dualistic uh, religious expressions like bhakti or karma or meditation. Is this new? Not at all. If you go to the classical monasteries, classical Advaita traditions, the Sringeri monastery or the monastery of Puri, these are established by Shankaracharya. What will, you know what you will find there? You will find an image, all ritualistic worship, everything is going on. 
Think about it. Is it contradictory? It seems to be contradictory. You're talking about non-dualism and yet dualistic worship is going on. There was this uh, great monk of our order, Jagadananda, he was a disciple of the Holy Mother. He was regarded as an enlightened person, Brahmagyani, in his lifetime. And I heard this story from, I never met him, but I heard this story from a monk who had seen him. He said, one day in our ashram in Dehradun, uh, in the north of India, where he used to live in his old age, Swami Jagadananda, he was picking flowers for the daily worship in the shrine. And a young novice, Brahmachari, who was surprised, said, Swami, even now you are picking flowers? Why? What's the problem? You are a Brahmagyani. Like, so the idea was, you are a knower of Brahman, you are enlightened. So something in the mind of the what is in the mind of the Brahmachari? If an, an enlightened person, I guess, will always be talking about Brahman and Om and uh, and would be reading the Mandukya and the Avaduta Gita or something like or, or Ashtavakra. That's an enlightened person. And a beginner like me is going to pick flowers and arrange flowers in the uh, shrine and worship in the shrine. So why is this person who is an enlightened person going around picking flowers? Now, all this is my explanation. You know what was Swami Jagadananda's response? When this young monk, novice, asked him, Swami, even now you are picking flowers for the daily worship? And the Swami, it seemed, had a wonderful, the sweetest smile you could imagine. So he gives his trademark smile and he says softly, Then tell me what should I do? <laughs> Very profound answer. Anything that you do in the world of Maya, in this world of appearance, is dualistic. What will you do? Give lectures on Vedanta because you are enlightened now? That's also dualistic. <laughs> Notice something. After enlightenment, or if you are a non-dualist, does a non-dualist eat? Yes. Yes. Of course. But isn't eating dualistic? Of course, the food is separate from me. That is food, this is me, I have to put it here. This is dualistic. Any action is dualistic. Because in the very structure of action, there is a doer and an action to be done, and the instruments of action, the occasion, the context for action, all these are separate. So obviously there is uh, dualism involved. As I said earlier, remember what I said, Advaita Vedanta says, the reality is non-duality. The reality is non-dual. Its expression is dualistic. Clearly we are having a dualistic experience now. Are we not? Advaita Vedanta would be foolish to deny that we are having a dualistic experience. What Advaita Vedanta does is questions the reality of your experience. You are having a dualistic experience. If you inquire, you will see the reality even now is one. When you dream, when we dream, is it not dualistic? I am there, there are people there, there are things happening there. It's a very dualistic. Dualistic means multiple entities are there. So there's a very dualistic experience in a dream. Is it not so? There are people, places, activities, and you're also there with, with a body in there in, in this whole simulation of what we call a dream. And yet, in this multiplicity, is it not true there is only one thing all the time, the dreamer's mind? Everything in your dream is your own mind. With respect to your mind, non-dual, not two. 
But in the dream, definitely multiple things are going on. Underlying it, reality is one dreamer's mind. Similarly here, one non-dual Brahman alone exists, appears as many. The Gita says, Avibhaktam chabhuteshu vibhaktam ivachasthitam Undivided in all beings, one reality appears to be divided. You alone in your dream, you divide yourself into a thousand people and interact with yourself. True, true or not? But even when you have divided yourself into a thousand in your dream, how many are you? You are one. Experience, duality. Reality is non-dual. Similarly here, there is only one duality. A one non-duality and which is experienced as a non-dual. Now in this non-dual appearance, if you worship, if you do spiritual practice, there also duality will be there. Therefore, all the gods and forms of gods and goddesses, the Hindu gods and goddesses which we worship in uh, our temples, in the Ramakrishna order, the understanding behind it is non-duality. In fact, if you look at the mantras of Durga Puja of Sh in Shivaratri, you will find always there is an element of non-duality there. Shankaracharya. Who else is a greater non-dualist than the Shankaracharya, Adi Shankaracharya? How many beautiful hymns he has written to the Divine Mother, to Shiva, to Vishnu, to Krishna, to Rama, to the Ganga. If you read it, it sounds like the greatest non-dualist ever, like the greatest dualist ever. The hymns written by dualistic Vedantins are no less devotional, uh, are no more devotional than the hymns written by the great non-dualist Shankaracharya. So, it may, it's uh, difficult to grasp, but it's, it's actually not, um, it's not dualism what we are doing. It is actually at its philosophical heart, non-dualism. Sri Ramakrishna put it this way in Bengali. In Bengali. It means, tie the knowledge of Advaita, non-duality, to the hem of your cloth. Hem of your cloth is an idiom used in, uh, in India in earlier days, uh, especially uh, the women they would tie the keys of the house to the hem of the sari. The essential stuff, everything is in the hand, in the keys. The keys, you know, to the, all the cupboards and the rooms and everything is tied to the hem of the sari here. And then she goes about doing her work in the household. In that way, Sri Ramakrishna says, tie the knowledge of Advaita to the hem of your cloth. Let it be your foundation. Aham Brahmasmi. I and Brahman are one reality. Then he says, then do whatever you please. Whatever you please means, would you like to worship God in the full glory of ritualistic worship? Unless you see a Durga Puja, you don't know what ritualistic worship is. Uh, five days of the most extreme ritualistic worship. Do it. And you can, with all honesty, say, Aham Brahmasmi, there is only one. Or do you want to engage in service to humanity? Feed the hungry, um, uh, treat the, the ill, Educate the illiterate. Do you want to do that? You can do it. All the time knowing all of these days I serve, they are my beloved Lord in all these forms. I am that one or one and the same. Or do you want to be immersed in meditation, in, in inner um, yogic meditation? That also you can do. But all the time have this knowledge. Aham Brahmasmi. This is how we do work. This is how everybody can do. This is what Krishna taught Arjuna. Go ahead and get engaged in the world and, and work. 
गीता इज सो क्लियर नियतम कुरु कर्मत्वम कर्म जायो ही अकर्मणा कंटिन्यूसली बी एंगेज इन एक्शन एक्शन इज फार सुपीरियर टू रिमेनिंग इन एक्टिव बट ऑन द बेसिस ऑफ दिस नॉन ड्यूअल रियलाइजेशन वी ऑलवेज चैंट बिफोर ईटिंग ब्रह्मापणम ब्रह्मवी ब्रह्माग्नो ब्रह्मणाहुतम ब्रह्मेव तेन गंतव्यम ब्रह्मकर्म समाधिना वॉट इज इट अ रेफरेंस टू दि एंशियंट वेदिक यज्ञ मॉडर्न हिंदूज वी डू पूजा पिक्चर और और इमेज इज देयर एंड वी परफॉर्म रिचुअल्स एंड मेक ऑफरिंग्स दैट्स द पूजा बट द एंशियंट हिंदूज दर्लियर फॉर्म ऑफ हिंदुइजम हैड वेदिक फायर रिचुअल्स एंड इन दैट अ फायर वॉज लेट अ सीक्रेट फायर वॉज लेट there would be a ladle with which you would put offerings and pour it into the fire to the accompaniment of the chanting of vedic mantras and by this ritual you get merit it was called adrishta the technical term in mimamsa and whatever you wanted worldly or otherworldly it would be given so this was the idea in ancient times clearly there seems to be duality you are there the offerings are there the fire into which you are pouring is there and the ladle with which you are pouring they all seem to be different things this duality and what does geeta say no brahmarpanam it's not a ladle it is brahman brahmagno it's not fire it is brahman brahmanahutam it's not the priest who is offering it uh, it is brahman alone brahmahavi the offering the, the the butter which is offered ghee it's not ghee it is brahman the one who sees brahman the non dual reality in the midst of this duality that one becomes enlightened that's the meaning of this verse where do you see it not just in meditation in the midst of all action you see non duality it may sound strange but it's a fact is it difficult not really look at the 10000 waves in the ocean how many you see 10000 i say look at the water how many do you see one as water it is one Uh, have all the waves disappeared not at all let as many waves be there as many waves you can count as many as you like and honestly in all honesty you can say it is one it's one body of water here in the ocean it's easy because we understand water we understand wave but here it's difficult because we understand human beings living beings non living beings millions of entities in this world but we don't understand brahman that's why not understanding or recognizing brahman samsara recognizing brahman in the midst of all this diversity enlightenment yes you had your hand up long time come yes hello my name is dan dan uh, i'm new here to vedanta and to the center and uh, a few years ago I had a profound spiritual experience when I was at the lowest point of my life. I had a a doctor who poisoned me and caused brain damage and he's since lost his medical license, but I was going through severe severe depression. And I escaped into a work of fiction. And uh, I promised the author I wouldn't reveal who he or she is, but I had an incredible realization and I escaped from this world and went into this fictional world. And so the characters felt real to me. And he used a literary technique that blew my mind. 
And so there were hundreds of characters in these stories, but I found that they were all one. And at first I was rooting for my favorite heroes and for the good guys, and then I saw divinity in the villain. And it was all a show, it was all a game, it was all divine Leela, and I felt extraordinary bliss, an ocean of bliss, like I've never experienced before. And I'm trying to get back in touch with that and to progress on my spiritual journey. And I'm wondering if you have any advice for somebody starting out. Right. We are not really starting out. <laughs> yeah. You're already there, right. And there was a very beautiful thing you said. What you experienced in that technique, in that literary world, transfer it here, that was the point of it. The enormous diversity here, remaining diverse, underneath it is that one divine reality. Ultimately, from that perspective, the hero is not the hero, the villain is not the villain. I alone am appearing as, I as that impersonal reality, am appearing as the hero and the villain. We have to play our parts. You have to be the hero and you have to um, improve or better the villain uh, in, in the story. But always knowing underneath, feeling that oneness with everybody. So that prevents us, that, that checks hatred, that checks fanaticism. To know that the person who differs from you, the person who's different, the person who does not agree with you, the person who, is, uh, who seems to be so recalcitrant, so uh, obtuse, so difficult, is none other than you. I, I myself in that form. You still have to deal with it. Life goes on as it is. But if you have that feeling of oneness, it's much easier. You don't get so upset at all. There's, a, there's an underlying calmness, there's an underlying serenity, and the knowledge that it's all right. Very good. And thanks, thanks for sharing, Dan. You want to come and say something? Yes. Then we'll take up a couple of questions from the internet and then we'll stop. Yeah. Swami, my name is Madhu. Madhu. Uh, uh, this is related to the first question we got. Uh, I'm now realizing. So I found this one sentence in the Briguvalli. Hmm. Which, uh, which goes, Sayaschayam Purushe Sayaschasa Aditya Saeka. Saeka, huh? Roughly translated, he who is in the person and who is in the sun is the same. Hmm. How so? And how do we understand this? All right. Sayaschayam Purusha Sayaschasa Aditya Saeka, huh? This is from Taittiriya Upanishad, from Taittiriya Upanishad. A very, very profound statement, but you have to understand it. It's, an, it's a very ancient kind of idiom, thousands of years old. Imagine it this way. There are many, many grades of existence, right? I'll take some time with this question, so we will not go into the internet questions anymore. <laughs> But it's a very, very good occasion to understand this. Now, 
And this ties in with the question of bliss, ānanda. Upanishad says the old Vedic or Upanishadic idea of happiness was that uh, your happiness in this world, if you see, it depends on the objects of happiness, the food and the drink and the company and all. That gives you happiness. And your own capacity. You must be hungry and thirsty and healthy and all the senses must be active to enjoy that object fully. And the environment must be proper. Must be a good environment. That's why the same cup of tea you take in the cart outside and the same cup of tea if you ask for it in Starbucks, it costs much, much more. Uh, or if you ask for it in a nice restaurant, it costs much more. They're charging you for the environment. Yeah. <laughs> it gives, so, three things. Sharira, Vishaya, Lokaha. Sharira means ob the body, the, f the psychophysical system. This is essential for your enjoyment, unless this is working. See, you're a multi-millionaire or a billionaire, and you can buy all the things that you want, but you're so sick that you're in, in the ICU in Mount Sinai. Now how happy will you be? You can't be happy, because the body is, is, is unable to enjoy anything. So a healthy body, a powerful body. So anyway, the point is this. Now this is the way we conceive enjoyment. Uh, in Taittiriya Upanishad it's there. And there are many, many grades of this. Many, many grades of this. They say the limit of enjoyment in this life, in the human life, in this, conceive of the person, of, of, of the maximum possible human enjoyment. And he gives paints an attractive picture. The first thing the Upanishad says, um, if I say it immediately, there are boos everywhere. Because first thing says, what is the first condition for human happiness? You are Syat, you must be young. <laughs> and all the people over 50 went boo the first time I said. <laughs> but it's a fact that what, what comes easily, effortlessly when you are 21, you have to really work at it and manage it to get the same thing when you are 51 or 61. 21, effortless. So anyway, young person, imagine such a person is highly educated. Adhyayaka, multiple PhDs from uh, Ivy League colleges. And rich. Prithiviyasya, vittasya, purnasya. All the wealth in the world is at the disposal of this young and very healthy. Ashishta, dradishta, balishta. Multiple words are used. Uh, with voracious desire for enjoying the world. Uh, healthy, good-natured, sadhusyat, good-natured. Moral person, not an evil person. Good-natured with noble intentions, extraordinarily rich. Yeah. The richest person in the world. And uh, uh, highly educated. And, and, and uh, all of this together in one person, imagine. And he says, that's the maximum possible human happiness. Okay? And he says, consider, consider that to be one unit of happiness. No more is possible in this world, but the Vedas promise you a hundred times, ten to the power two, a hundred times the happiness of this person is possible in one of the lower, cheap heavens. <laughs> uh, budget heavens, yes. And there are names there. How do you go there? Well, 
why is it so is it so much better there because the three components of happiness the body the sharira the objects vishaya and the loka environment they are all much much better you get a much superior body in a, in a heaven compared to a human a biological body here superman uh, spiderman body something like that <laughs> higher body and there are superior objects of enjoyment available to uh, the in fact that lowest grade of heaven is called karma gandharva um gandharvas are celestial musicians the way I, i try to understand this is you have heard of musicians i think beethoven or somebody who was deaf and yet could compose and actually hear the music the real music is inside it really does not require a physical organ like this highly trained musicians they can hear the music when they look at the score and they can hear it much better than what you do actually perform in the orchestra they hear it with extraordinary perception uh, with uh, clarity and perception now imagine a life like that where all of that is enjoyed within yourself how how keen would be your enjoyment how super fine would be your enjoyment and that's the budget heaven not just music everything in life is like that you know it could taste it's heavenly nectar ambrosia or something whatever the top 10 drinks there so all of that is possible but you have to go to this other world it's post mortem you can't have it in this body you have to perform these vedic rituals there are this fire rituals yagyas and they will give you enough credit so that you can join this budget cruise afterwards <laughs> after death and of course the priests have a commission you have to pay pay me the commission is not post mortem you have to pay me right now <laughs> but it was a system of belief like any religion so they had a, they firmly believed in this that if i have enough good karma after death i go to one of these heavens and the lowest heaven is like that there are higher heavens 10 to the power 2 100 times of that lower heaven 10 to the power 2 100 times uh, of this it should in, keeps on increasing step by step by step by step as you go to more and more glorious existences more and so more power more uh, um, uh, enjoyment uh, more glory and your happiness keeps on increasing but the point he makes there all the time is um uh shrotriya kamahatasya cha at every step he says instead of going there performing these fire rituals and waiting for death and going to heaven afterwards and expecting that happiness later on if you want that kind of 100 times of the human happiness right now says you need to do two things you need to have that vedantic knowledge i am brahman realize it actually and dispassion for these worldly enjoyments akamahata literally it means not injured or wounded or destroyed by desire I don't want this limited way of enjoying the world. I am going to experience the bliss of Brahman I, as Brahman, as this infinitude. You will get that same happiness which the one in the heavens they get right here. And as you go to higher and higher heavens, ten to the power two, ten to the power four, ten to the power six, happiness of what? The maximum human happiness that's promised. All of that you can get here. The more your dispassion is, if you have dispassion for those. worldly and other worldly enjoyments and you are you are centered in your knowledge or realization of brahman you will get that bliss here basically what he's trying to say is 
the highest possible worldly or otherworldly enjoyment in equivalent joy and peace and serenity is available to you if you are spiritual. If you are spiritual. Now, coming back to your question, how far does this go? Good cruises, super cruises, super super cruises, super duper cruises. <laughs> and what's the maximum possible conception of happiness they have got in the Vedas? They say the highest possible, he says, Brahmana Loka, that means the world of Hiranyagarbha. That's the maximum. You know, they say seventh heaven. The maximum glory, the maximum power. That's called the cosmic mind. One can actually reach that uh, with enough of good karma. How much is that happiness? If you compare it to this, the world, maximum worldly happiness. I calculate it. The maximum world, remember what we are comparing it with, the maximum worldly happiness. When I talk about this, a lot of people have smiles on their face, just imagining it. <laughs> the, the, the maximum worldly happiness is this richest person, young person, highly educated, good person, a tremendous amount of wealth. That happiness, that's one. And this world of Hiranyagarbha or Brahma, not Brahman, but Brahma, the highest heaven. How much happiness compared to that? 10 to the power 20. If you put 1 followed by 20 zeros, how many trillion, billion, <laughs> zillion times of that happiness? Don't try to think about it, you'll get a stroke. <laughs> I had read a science fiction story many, many years ago when I was a kid. A very interesting science fiction story. It says that the more bigger number that you think about, the more it blows your mind, you know, a billion, oh, that's so huge, a trillion, that's really, really huge, um, um, a centillion, and now there are uh, even bigger numbers. There is a, um, there is a Googleplex, uh, th there is, th there is, what's the name of, th of that number? Um, Googleplex, if you see the um, Guinness Book of World Records. One followed by a hundred zeros, one followed by a hundred zeros, one followed by a thousand zeros and so on. So the science fiction story was, they invented a number, <laughs> which if you see it, it will stun you so much that you will die immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so all you have to do to commit suicide is look at that number and you'll die. You'll get such a shock, it's so big. <laughs> so this happiness is so much, if you don't try to think about it. Because he'll get a stroke immediately if you think about it. That is the happiness, he says. Now this Hiranyagarbha, the point is this. This Hiranyagarbha in, in, in the ancient Vedas is identified with Aditya, the sun. The sun stands for that Hiranyagarbha. Okay. So the, not sun, by sun it does not mean the ball of uh, uh, nuclear fusion going on, the uh, hydrogen being converted into nuclear fusion. N it's just the body of Hiranyagarbha. That's that this is your body and this is my body. There's a consciousness which calls the sun its own body. That was the conception. And so that is Hiranyagarbha. This is the human being. Now what that line says, Yaschayam Purushe, that glory and happiness which is there in one human being. And that 10 to the power 20 which is there in that incredible being. Uh, the most glorious being in this universe, Hiranyagarbha, the cosmic mind, both are the same. What does it mean? 1 is equal to 10 to the power 20. How? 
That is 10 to the power 20. This is one. What it is pointing towards is both are manifestations of one Satchidananda, which you are. If you realize that, it's just like my face being reflected in a distorted little dirty mirror and the same face being reflected in the finest platinum mirror. What a beautiful reflection and what a miserable little reflection. That's the human happiness. That is the great happiness of, of Hiranyagarbha, Aditya. Both are same. I am this. So when you realize Aham Brahmasmi, this entire range of happiness is open to you. That's the meaning. Literally it means that which is in this miserable human creature, that which is in this glorious Hiranyagarbha. So you have to ima imagine the old Ved uh, Vedic worship. That was the range of their religion. This range. What Vedanta does is, the whole range is appearance, maya. Appearance of what? The one reality which you already are. Sa ekaha, it is one. 